Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Today, we're going to have the second in a series we're doing on the legal profession. Some of you may recall that last time we had attorney John Allison on our program, and we talked about two of his books. One's called Transforming the Practice of Law, Reclaiming the Soul of the Legal Profession. His other book that we're going to talk quite a bit about today is called Choosing Your Lawyer, an Insider's Practical Guide to Making a Really Good Choice. Going to be very helpful. Along with John Allison, we have another attorney, Patrick Pekin, here today, and together the two of them bring 56 years of legal experience to our studio and to our listeners. But first, news and notes in psychology and medicine. Sometimes I'm asked about the name of this program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Why do you have to include politics in a health program? Don't we already have enough politics everywhere else? Well, here's my answer. The air we breathe is a political decision. How clean or dirty our air is has become a decision made by politicians. Corporations who pollute the air make huge contributions to politicians who have decision-making power over air quality. Politicians vote on our air quality. This is a vote on our ability to breathe clean air. Have you ever sat and thought about the fact that some group of politicos are sitting in a room voting about how much or how little dirt you can breathe? Do you really think these politicians know a lot about the science of air quality? Do you think congressmen who are elected for two years and spend a great deal of their time trying to get reelected have time to make a big study of the science of air quality? No, that's not what goes on. They listen to the lobbyists who are paid by companies who put dirt in the air. Clean air is essential for health, and air quality is a political decision. How clean or contaminated is our water is also a political decision. Witness Flint, Michigan, where an entire population of close to 100,000 people have been drinking contaminated water for over a year because of political decisions made by their political leaders. Thousands of children have been irreparably damaged. And if you think this cannot happen to you, then you'd best think again. We have recent reports that a city in Vermont has also been discovered to have a contaminated water supply. They thought it could never happen to them. We think it can never happen to us. Sit and give some thought to the fact that some group of politicians are voting on how clean or dirty or dangerous your drinking water is. And now consider, consider our medicine. What we are allowed to take as medicine is a political decision made by the Federal Drug Authority, a.k.a. the FDA. The board of the FDA is a revolving door with the large pharmaceutical companies. The pharmaceutical companies send people to sit on the board of the FDA who then decides what medicines we can or cannot take. So what happens is we get the medicines that the pharmaceutical companies can produce for the most profit. Medicines that can be made for negligible cost rarely reach us. Witness cannabis, easily grown in anyone's backyard and suppressed by the U.S. government for over 50 years. This week, an English company, 
GW Pharmaceuticals, announced a successful scientific study with Epidiolex, a medicine extracted from marijuana. This medicine could bring relief for up to 500,000 children in the United States who suffer from untreatable epileptic seizures. In England, this company sells another medicine, Cetivex, which is used to treat the symptoms of multiple sclerosis. Our country will not let Epidiolex or Cetivex in. This is a political decision, depriving patients of medicine. And let's not hold our breath thinking that because marijuana is easy to grow, that medicinal marijuana will be inexpensive. Big Pharma and their minions, our politicos whom they support financially, will surely figure out a way to charge us huge prices, uh, perhaps for the cost of the bottles. Another example, possession of of recreational marijuana is a felony in most of the United States. Last year, there were no known deaths from marijuana in the United States. On the other hand, tobacco and cigarettes is legal in every state in our union. There are over 40 million smokers in the United States. Every year, 480,000 people die as a result of smoking. One out of five deaths in the United States is caused by smoking. The decision to keep the safe marijuana illegal and the extremely dangerous tobacco smoking legal is a political decision. And how about the food we eat? It's well established that processed food is much less healthy than unprocessed food. Yet, here in the United States, the richest country on the planet, over 67% of the food Americans eat is processed. Why? Because corporations make money manufacturing and processing the food. Corporations are manufacturing what is essentially poison in the form of soda, food drinks, frozen and packaged meals, processed fish, meat, cakes, and sweets. The food we have available to us is a political decision. The unhealthy processed foods, in turn, contributes to the obesity epidemic. Can you imagine 60% of our country suffering from anything, the common cold, flu, pneumonia, you name it. Imagine 60% of our country suffering from any illness. And to be sure, it would be a daily national issue on on the front page of every paper. Just think about it. 67% of the whole country suffering from something. Yet, we have 67% of our country suffering from overweight and obesity And in this year of presidential election, there's not one word on the news of this national epidemic. Not one word. How does that come about? According to the National Institute of Health, obesity and overweight together are the second leading cause of preventable, again, preventable death in the United States, close behind tobacco use an estimated 370,000 deaths per year are due to the obesity epidemic. So let's review. 480,000 a year from legal tobacco smoking, 370,000 deaths 
from obesity and overweight, and these are political decisions, and nothing is about it in the news. You don't hear it as a campaign issue. Why not? The fact that the overweight obesity epidemic is not a national issue is a political decision costing hundreds of thousands of preventable deaths every year. Try this out for size as a statistic. Combined cigarette smoking and overweight cause about 2,500 preventable deaths every single day of the year. 2,500 preventable deaths every single day of the year. This is political. Our air, our water, our food, our medicines, our treatment, the basic stuff of life which are essential for our health, our children's health, our longevity, and our ability to enjoy our inalienable rights are all political decisions. The only exceptions being those who live far enough away from what we call civilization, that they drink clean water from their own ground, breathe fresh country air, grow their own food, and eat their own animals. Folks, dear neighbors, gentle friends, we cannot separate our health from our politics, and that's why it is essential that every single citizen be politically engaged. Your health and your very life depends on it. If you believe, as I do, that you're responsible for your own health and the health of your family, then you must be politically aware and politically engaged. Yes, we all agree that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but this endowment takes a great deal of combined individual effort to ensure. Health is not a given, and presently our health is a political issue. These are a few of the many reasons this program is called Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Our minds, our bodies, our very health are the subject of political decisions too often determined by profit and power and too seldom made for the benefit of us, the very people who together make up our country. So when you're considering your health program, be sure and remember that being politically aware and voting a part of your health program. Your very life depends on it. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. After 50 years of experience as a health practitioner, I have come to believe that a critical necessity for good health is our coming together in community as good neighbors, cooperating, raising our awareness, and ensuring that the people we elect truly represent our interests, our well-being, and our health. And now, we're going on to the interview with attorney John Allison and attorney Patrick Pekin. Welcome, John. Good morning, Richard. Welcome, Patrick. Good morning. Glad to have you both here. Thank you for being here. Glad to be here. As I said earlier in the introduction, 
This is the second in a series on the legal profession. Last time we were here with attorney John Allison, and we talked about his books, Transforming the Practice of Law, Reclaiming the Soul, the Soul of the Legal Profession, and his other book, which we're going to focus more on today, Choosing Your Lawyer, an Insider's Practical Guide to Making a Really Good Choice, something that very often in our lives we each have to do. We have to choose a lawyer. John, give us a little review, please, of what we talked about last time, and then we'll move on to what we're going to talk about this time. Well, thank you, Richard. Last time we focused on my most recent book, Transforming the Practice of Law, and uh, let me just give a little bit of background in terms of why I wrote the book. I practiced law for 43 years and enjoyed it. I really enjoyed practicing law and enjoyed being part of the legal profession. A few years ago, I noticed uh, two statistics. One was a study that was conducted by the uh, uh, Johns Hopkins University, uh, the uh, medical school, and the study found that based on data in the 1990s, that lawyers are 3.6 times more likely than members of the general population to suffer from clinical depression. Now, clinical depression is a diagnosable illness. It's not simply being down or you know feeling the blues, uh, but it's a diagnosable condition, 3.6 times more likely or more prevalent among lawyers than among um, uh, the general population. The um, second data point was, uh, re- more recently, the Pew Research Center conducted a statistically valid survey of people asking them for their opinions about the uh, about 10 different occupational groups. And the results of the study found that uh, lawyers basically came in last place among the 10 uh, professions that were studied. The legal profession came in last uh, in terms of professions that were found to or believed to contribute a lot to the well-being of society. Even more striking, in my opinion, was the, uh, the flip side of the study. The legal profession came in first place uh, in terms of the professions that were found to contribute nothing or very little to the well-being of society. 34% of the people participating in this statistically valid public opinion survey uh, believe that the legal profession, lawyers, contribute little or nothing to the well-being of society. So I put those two together and thought that this is terrible. I mean, something something really, uh, this is not good because the legal profession is responsible for administering our system of justice. Uh, the legal profession is uh, responsible for maintaining a society. We have a constitutional democracy based on the rule of law. Uh, lawyers make that possible. We have constitutional rights that lawyers protect. Uh, we have a, a free and open society that is... Uh, protected from authoritarian rule and also protected from mob rule by the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, lawyers enforce those uh, principles. John, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights are the foundation of our country, are they not? Yes, they are. These these are the rules of the road, and these are the rights that we have as citizens for signing on to those rules of the road. Absolutely, and they're critical to the to the quality of life that we enjoy in this country. And, and as you pointed out, because we have a constitution, and we have the, which is the rules of the road, and then the rights that we have as people who sign on for them, 
this is what makes us a democracy rather than a dictatorship, and what it, what it, that's what makes us equal, what's called equal before the law. Exactly. Now, the people who are to protect this very foundation of our entire society are lawyers. Exactly. They are lawyers, yes. And yet you're saying that the research now is, is saying some very scary things about these protectors of our very foundation. The data indicate that roughly 25% of lawyers currently practicing are miserable in various ways. And so I asked myself, why is this, why is this happening? And I did a lot of research, a lot of reading and studying. I read cases, I read previous studies, uh, and uh, a fair number of books to try to get a handle on why the legal profession is in such a, a bad state, uh, both in terms of lawyers experiencing stress at a disproportionate level compared to the rest of the population, compared to other professions like doctors. Lawyers are much more stressed than doctors, uh, clergy, other, other professionals, uh, according to the uh, Hopkins study. And so I asked myself why. I wanted to understand why this is happening. And that's why I wrote Transforming the Practice of Law, was to explain uh, my, my findings and my analysis of, of uh, why this is taking place. It starts in law school. It starts with the nature of legal education. And there are two things I'd like to make uh, just a brief comment on. One is that lawyers are taught to think like lawyers. Law students are taught to think like lawyers. They're taught to analyze the facts of a case. Uh, they're taught that uh, emotions, uh, moral considerations, and so forth are irrelevant to a proper legal analysis. And so they're basically, after three years of law school, trained to split off part of their humanity. And, and that in itself is a cause of stress. You, you quote Aristotle as saying that the law is reason free of passion. And law schools have, have modeled their program based on that, uh, on that concept. And but you also go on to say that clients' emotional experience is not legally relevant. It's not relevant to the outcome of a case. And so many lawyers are simply unable or unwilling to deal with how a client is experiencing a legal problem, which to a client is at least as important as what is the nature of the legal problem. And the... Uh, at least as important. Oh, certainly, from the client's standpoint. Because when we go into a lawyer's office, so many of us, we have a problem. We're yes. not there because we're having a great day. Exactly. We're had there because either someone is suing us or we're in trouble with the law or we've had a DUI or we've had a divorce. Something not good is going on and we're scared. And the very thing that is, 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 is filling us fear is you're saying the one thing that is irrelevant in the room that we're in with the lawyer who is supposed to protect us. Let me give you an example. Suppose you're in an uh, accident and you've been seriously injured. It could be a car accident. And you're concerned as a client about how you're, gonna, you're going to uh, be able to get back to work after you've been out for a while. You don't want to lose your job. You're worried about paying your mortgage. You're worried about your medical bills. You're worried about supporting your family. None of that's relevant to your no, legal claim. None and of that's relevant. None of that's relevant to your legal claim. And so the... Uh, my first book, Choosing Your Lawyer, talks about why it's important to find lawyers who can understand what you're experiencing so they can help you, they can help all of you and not just focus on your legal problem 
in isolation because it's it's just one facet or one aspect of what's going on, what you're experiencing. John, what you're saying and what our listeners are hearing is frightening. One out of four lawyers are miserable. Yes. The feelings that they bring into their lawyer's office are irrelevant. What's the good news? Well, the good news is that there's a path forward. But let me let me go on and just summarize what we talked about in the last show. Fair enough. The uh, After law school, okay, so the next thing that happened was Watergate. And Watergate, uh, well, let me back up just a second. The next thing that happened was that in 1969, the American Bar Association adopted a principle in the model uh, code of professional responsibility that lawyers are to be zealous advocates and zealous representatives of their clients. Zealous in the dictionary means a fervent partisan. So basically, lawyers were told in 1969 that their ethical responsibility to their clients is to be fervent partisans on behalf of their clients. And so think of what that does. If a lawyer on one side of a case has that attitude, a lawyer on the other side of the case has that attitude, that generates controversy where perhaps a dispute or an issue could be resolved quickly and easily and more amicably uh, by if lawyers were focused on solving the client's problem as opposed to being zealous advocates or zealous representatives. And I give a number of examples in my book, Transforming the Practice of Law, specific case studies that show how zealous representation gets out of hand in a variety of contexts. It could be prosecutors being overly zealous. It could be lawyers in civil cases being overly zealous. Business lawyers uh, basically bending the rules beyond the breaking point and helping their clients engage in securities fraud, accounting fraud, and that type of thing. Examples in the book, uh, the stories that are based on real-life case studies uh, illustrate what can happen when zealous representation gets out of hand. So then we, we have that in 1969. In the early 70s, we had Watergate, where a number of lawyers in the, in the White House were found to have conspired to affect the outcome of the 1972 presidential election because President Nixon wanted to win by a landslide. Nixon, of course, was a lawyer himself. Uh, a number of lawyers then engaged in a cover-up to hide what had been done when uh, five people broke into the Watergate Hotel uh, and, tr and uh, put bugging devices on the phones of the Democratic National Committee in an effort to influence the election. Many of the people who were involved in the conspiracy who pled guilty or convicted at tri a trial of criminal charges were lawyers. Lawyers went to prison. The Attorney General of the United States, John Mitchell, went to prison. That whole episode was widely publicized over a period of two years because there were Senate hearings, there was a special prosecutor. It obviously gave the legal profession a very bad name. Then in the late 1970s, the Supreme Court decided to end the ban on advertising by lawyers. And so now we see lawyer ads all over the place the size of buses and airports and back covered telephone books, uh, basically encouraging people to, to uh, call a lawyer if they think that they have an issue. It used to be that lawyers would get business by uh, referrals from happy clients or by building the reputation through civic involvement, uh, working in the community and that type of thing. But now lawyers, now lawyers can advertise. On the heels of that, over the the next 20 years or so, in the 1980s and 1990s, we saw the commercialization of the private practice of law where making money became more important than serving the interests of justice. Uh, as part of that event 
part of that development. We've seen an explosion in litigation where if you look at the data published by the National Center for State Courts and also the federal judicial system, how many uh, civil lawsuits are filed each year, uh, divided by the number of seconds that the clerk's offices are open to receive filings of new cases, we find that we're in a situation now where a civil lawsuit, civil lawsuits are filed at an average rate of more than one lawsuit per second. So in, in less time than it takes to say the word lawsuit, another one got filed someplace in the United States. That doesn't include criminal cases, it doesn't include family law cases, small claims court cases, bankruptcy cases. These are lawsuits, people suing other people or companies suing each other or people suing the government perhaps. And then... Uh, I've got to interrupt and say sure. this is a fantastic uh, piece of data. A, 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 a person is suing another person in this country every single second. 25% of the lawyers, you say, are miserable. We've got a situation where they've become overzealous, where money has become the most important thing. This is a very sad and very dangerous situation that you're revealing to us, John. Well, it's not, it's not a happy situation, Richard. And there's a recent study that came out last month in February of 2016 that was published in the Journal of the American Society of Addiction Medicine, which basically confirms the earlier studies from Hopkins that I cited in my book uh, from the 90s and finds that 28%, uh, this was a study of 12,800 lawyers, and it found that 28% uh, of the lawyers are problem drinkers. 20% of the lawyers are depressed. 19% of the lawyers are suffering from anxiety. It better this, be all the same people in all those three groups because if they're in all three separate groups, we're up to about 60% of the lawyers in the country. I suspect there's a lot of overlap. Uh, I suspect there's a lot of overlap. But I basically, said that tongue-in-cheek. Of course, I, I, there I, is overlap, and we know that. But basically, basically, it confirms the earlier studies and indicates the high level of stress within the profession. The second point I'd like to make about that study in addition to being confirmatory of the earlier study, is that this study of 12,800 lawyers was broken down demographically by practice area, by gender, by years in the practice, and a, an interesting conclusion was reached that surprised the researchers, and, and it also seems to be kind of unexpected, that lawyers practicing for 10 years or less were more likely to be suffering from these manifestations of stress, problem drinking, depression, anxiety, than lawyers who had practicing longer, which suggests that, the, uh, that this level of stress in the profession is not so much a matter of burnout, because if it was burnout, you would expect that lawyers practicing longer would be more likely to be depressed, drink too much, yes. and so forth. This suggests that, that the practice of law, particularly the private practice of law, has become a lot more stressful during the past 10 years. By the way, for those of you who want to read this actual study, it's the American Society of Addiction Medicine, January-February 2016. The title of the article is mm -hmm. The Prevalence of Substance Abuse and Other Mental Health Concerns Amongst American Attorneys. And by the way, you're listening to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Today we have attorney John Allison and attorney Patrick Pekin, and we're talking about the legal profession. 
and we're talking about serious problems in the legal profession, serious problems in a profession that is guarding the cornerstone of our foundation in our culture, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Yes, yes. Patrick, as you're listening to your colleague, John Allison, talk about these problems, one out of four uh, attorneys miserable. Of course, one could say that leaves 75% that are happy, so that's a nicer way of looking at it. But it also means that people listening to this program are thinking they go out and look for a lawyer, and they've got a one out of four chance of finding somebody who's miserable and is liable not to do a good job taking care of them. What does that sound like to you as a, as a member of this legal profession? You've been practicing for 13 years. I think there's a variety of factors <clears throat> that John touched on that are probably worth getting into. My dad was a, a district attorney himself down in the Salinas area, and, and I, I practiced in the Salinas for many years before moving to Mendocino. My dad explained to me that, uh, well, he was a a DA, and then he became a defense attorney in private practice himself. And it, what he said was that at one point in time, there was what was called the Public Attorneys Association, where all the attorneys who were public defenders and DAs would get together, and they would have classes on what the law was and what sorts of programs they were going to do and that kind of thing. At some point in time, and I'm not clear when that occurred, someone got the bright idea to create a a separate association for for district attorneys and public defenders. And to this day, when I go to uh, upkeep classes, I have to go to regular classes to keep my license. I only go to, to courses that are given by other defense attorneys. And DAs only go to courses given by other DAs. My dad was a DA. My wife was a DA as well out here on the coast. And I've been to each of these courses. And one thing that's interesting to me is that whenever I've gone to the, to the courses to keep up my license is how the presenters of the courses talk about district attorneys because I'm a defense attorney. And many of the presenters for the defense attorney courses talk very disparagingly about district attorneys, that they are dishonest or overly aggressive and all sorts of terrible things. Now, I've also gone along with my wife when she's gone to her courses when she was a district attorney for her training courses, and the same thing happened on the flip side. The presenters for the district attorney courses talked about how defense attorneys are untruthful and you know terrible people. And so there's this, in many counties, I, I'm glad to say that Mendocino seems to be an exception. Um, in other places that I've practiced, Salinas and, and San Jose, there's a lot of aggression between defense attorneys and DAs. There's a, frankly, I've seen a lot of yelling in the courtroom and, and anger um, and uh, sometimes even dirty tricks in cases. Mendocino County has seemed to, seems to have avoided that because they, they, they have a lot of, uh, the, the bar as a whole gets together more and they seem to avoid it. But what Mr. Allison is talking about with this zealous representation, um, this division and animosity between the two groups, I've seen that in the, in the criminal spectrum. Well, it doesn't portend too well for people listening, again, because somehow or other they're going to have to go out and make their choices. So I think it's time we started talking about how to choose an attorney so we can reduce some of the fear that people might be having listening to this 
being afraid they could get a miserable attorney representing them or an overzealous one or an angry one or a depressed or an alcoholic or something like that. They want to, people who are listening, they want to get one of those 75% who are hopefully happy, virtuous, and doing a good job. There's a couple other points I wanted to add as well. All right, I mean, Patrick. There were, you know, one thing that was brought up in the study was that there's a greater prevalence of alcoholism in, in, in attorneys who've been practicing for 10 years or less. I think yes. that was mentioned. And, um, you know, when my dad went to University of California, he paid, I think, something like $25 a semester, give or take. I went to University of California at Hastings as well, and I graduated with $90,000 worth of debt in 2003. Now, I read just last year that people graduating from University of California, Hastings today are graduating with $120,000 worth of debt. And I don't really understand why it's 30% more expensive now than it was in 2003. But that's a significant stressor, and certainly for someone who's just graduated law school, that's a factor as well. That's a huge stressor. and Pushing them to make money, not necessarily, again, in the interests of their clients. Right. There's also been a significant decrease in pro bono work as a result or work for nonprofits because people are, are well, they have to make their law school loan payments. You can't, you can't get rid of a law school loan through bankruptcy. You can't, right. I don't think you can get rid of any kind of student loan through bankruptcy. That's right. That's right. That's, That's right. a horrendous situation. Okay, a person's listening to this, and they're saying, I've got a situation in my life. I need a lawyer. What do they do, John? That's why I wrote my first book, Choosing Your Lawyer, because it walks people through specific steps that they can take to find a lawyer who's really good. And there are a number of things uh, to do. Uh, you talk to other people and get recommendations, get some ideas about who uh, might be a good lawyer based on other people's experience. Take that with a grain of salt, though, because your friend's experience might not have been the same as yours, and a lawyer who did a good job for your friend might not do a good job for you. So, uh, but, but talk to, to friends, business associates. Uh, this is true whether it's a personal legal matter or somebody uh, you need a lawyer to represent your business or a large corporation. Um, get, re get recommendations from other people. Now, you Check mentioned in your book that an initial consultation with a lawyer is frequently without fee. It should be. It needs to be clarified with the lawyer to make sure you don't get a surprise bill. Is that tr true in your experience, Patrick? Is it's true frequent, in my practice. That the people who come to see you, the first consultation is frequently without or always, almost always without fee. Yes. So that gives you an opportunity to interview the client and gives the client an opportunity to interview you. Right. They might be shopping for a lawyer, and, and frequently I, I'll, I'll tell people that uh, they might not need a lawyer. They might, depending on the situation, right. which is one of the things you talk about, you know, the different aspects of the law that the person might be involved with because there's a major difference between a, a criminal case such as what you handle, Patrick, and perhaps a civil case where someone uh, had a tree that fell into their neighbor's yard uh, or a DUI. Each of these is a different kind of lawyer, isn't it? It is, and it's important to find a lawyer with the experience handling your legal matter or matters uh, similar to yours. And so if a uh, you know, if, if you need a will or an estate plan, find a really good estate planning lawyer. 
who can help you walk through that process. Uh, a DUI is kind of a specialized area, and so it's important to have to find a lawyer who uh, has had experience with DUIs in uh, representing clients who've been charged with DUIs. If you're a, uh, a corporation or you're uh, an executive with a corporation who needs to find a lawyer to um, handle a securities offering, it's important to find lawyers with experience having done that. So finding a lawyer with the right experience um, is the first step. With the right experience in the particular area of the law that you need help in. Yes. It would be similar if you have a broken bone, you're not going to go to an ear, nose, and throat doctor. Yes. So you've got to be that specific with lawyers as well. Yes. And then you list some things that a person might ask themselves. Does this lawyer's manner and demeanor inspire trust? That's something you feel when you're sitting there. Does this lawyer have good judgment? Well, that's something you have to feel along the way. Is the lawyer a good listener? When you're sitting and talking during that initial interview, is the lawyer listening to you? Or do they seem distracted? Are they looking out the window? Are they taking phone calls? Does the lawyer want to understand my legal situation and how I feel about it? I emphasize the word feel because yes. remember earlier we said the law is reason without passion and there's no place for emotion. And yet a person walks in, they walk into your office, Patrick, and you're a criminal defense attorney. People walk in to see you. I imagine a lot of them are scared. Very much so. Right? They've got a lot of emotion going. It's true. And um, just a couple other thoughts on that. You know, when you are looking for a lawyer, if you think that you've got a problem coming up, you should speak to a lawyer as soon as possible. I can't tell you how many people... <laughs> have wanted to consult with me the day before their court date, which is, uh, that, that's an issue. The so, day before the court date, they're correct. telling you to get all, you know, all hip to everything that's going on in their entire case and then go in tomorrow and take care? Right, exactly, or the morning of. So there's, I mean, so for example, Mr. Allison. That's like a, a woman about to have a baby and she chooses a road beef GYN in the ninth month. Right, you don't want to uh, be, be uh, put, put it off and then be put into a position where you have to rush. One thing that John pointed out was a DUI. So frequently what happens with a DUI is you get pulled over and uh, the, the police will either take you in or they will, they will cite you and, and allow someone else to drive the car home and that kind of thing. And then your court date will be about a month from that date. You've got plenty of time to talk to a lawyer. Um, you know, the second piece of advice that I would give is be, be aware of lawyers who promise results. Um, that's something to be concerned of. Um, lawyers should be able to promise work, their own work, their own professionalism, but uh, you should be very concerned about any lawyer who promises to, you know, uh, they'll definitely get the case dismissed. They'll absolutely win when they haven't even read a police report and all they've done is talked to you. But you do uh, want to pay attention when a lawyer listens to what you have to say carefully and then at least has some sort of a plan of action. That's usually a good sign. A, a plan of action. Right. Some of the other things from John's book, to ask ourselves, do I understand what the lawyer is telling me? That's important. Do I walk out of there and I don't understand what the heck went on, or do I understand what the lawyer is telling me? Do I feel free to ask questions to clarify? In other words, does the lawyer make me feel comfortable asking a question in the room? Am I sitting there so scared I'm afraid to ask a question because the lawyer has an attitude? That's a key, and that's why it's important, very important, I'd say essential, to interview a lawyer face-to-face -face before deciding to hire a lawyer. Uh, because it's the only way to, to be able to read the lawyer's body language, to be able to 
make sure that you're comfortable with a lawyer, that you trust the lawyer, that you can share your your deepest secrets with a lawyer in confidence. The attorney-client privilege protects that, but clients aren't comfortable fully disclosing the, the details of their situation to a lawyer they don't trust. In the absence of trust, an attorney-client relationship cannot work well. And so it's important to make sure you trust the lawyer, you find some a lawyer who, who listens, who pays attention, who has the experience in handling matters like yours, and who is going to is going to give it his or her all on your behalf. It doesn't mean they have to be fervent partisanship partisans or zealous advocates, but they have to really really put their best effort, their best thinking, their best creativity into representing you. And you can only get a sense of that by interviewing a lawyer face to face. Yeah. You know, I said earlier that this is a, a part two in a series on the legal profession. Mm-hmm. I can tell by what's going on today that we're not going to come anywhere near getting through even what we had for today. And so I'm glad that I'm doing uh, a lengthy series on it. And I, I'm, I hope you, you gentlemen will be coming back. I also know that our local district attorney, David Eister, has already agreed that he's going to be on this program so he can explain more about how the use of the district attorney uh, in, 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 and what the district attorney does and what the function is. Our sheriff, Tom Allman, is going to come on and he's going to talk about the relationship between the sheriff and the district attorney and how that aspect of the legal system works. Uh, We're going to invite Keith Folder on, another uh, uh, local attorney, and he's going to talk about his his practice here in Mendocino County. Uh, But right now, I want to take a a call from a, a person in Sarasota, Florida, uh, Jean Bayou, uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Are you with us? Hi, Richard. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for joining us today. I wanted to hear from someone who is on the... We have two lawyers sitting here. I want to hear from someone who has experience on the other side of the desk, and I would like you to tell one of your stories, your personal stories about encounters with the legal profession. Well, thank you very much, Richard. Um, I worked for an intellectual property law firm for 28 years. Um, I worked part-time for a long time, and they started out as a small boutique firm, and there was a lot of part people in that family, and people worked well together, um, worked hard. It was a very job, but the work got done, and people felt a sense of accomplishment and we were bought by a large um, corporate firm at one point, and um, that I, I witnessed personally the loss of the heart and soul of, of our firm um, due to money, the pursuit of money. And the, the, the staff in, in any law firm is the first line. That is the people that people will be talking to when they call. When they first come in the office, they will be greeted by a receptionist or a secretary. And they are the ones who have empathy and who talk to the clients and um, who often impart a lot of knowledge to the clients. They know the business, but if they're not treated well in the firm, and I I witnessed this myself, um, it's demoralizing and debasing. Um, I witnessed many firings um, just Last week, a couple of my friends, uh, one who had been there 28 years and one who had been there 29 years, were escorted out of the firm um, 
instead of having a party for them, they, they walked them to their cars and, you know, told them, okay, you're, you're fired. They were long, long-term employees who had a great deal of knowledge about the practice and who were very valuable assets, but they were not treated as such. This was a corporate takeover of a private legal firm that you're telling us about? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. So, and, uh, so we, we lost the soul of the business, John, is it right? That's what this sounds like. Exactly. This, this is a very painful situation to realize is happens, and it happens a lot, I would have to say, within yep. the legal profession. And it's, it's really sad, and it, it's what happens when money becomes too important. And if I can get back to just briefly to Patrick's point about student loans, let me just Mm -hmm. let me just paint this picture and see if this if this resonates. The largest, the the most prominent law schools, the first tier law schools typically charge forty five, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year for tuition. That's for a three year program. So law students get out of law school. There may be one hundred, one hundred and twenty. $150,000 $150,000 in debt. And if they're really good students, they hope to go to work for a big firm where the starting salary on Wall Street might be 150000 a year, which seems outrageous because this is somebody with no clients, no experience practicing law, and they're making all this money. The downside from the, from the new lawyer standpoint is that they're expected to bill, on average, 2,200 hours a year to clients. Uh, there's ed- continuing education, there are firm meetings, there are trainings, there are, there are other things that lawyers can't bill for. And so for a lawyer to bill that, they have to work roughly 2,700, 2,800 hours a year. That's, yes. that's a tremendous, tremendous burden. There's no time for mentoring. Yep. There's no time for pro bono. And it all becomes about the bottom line. And so staff are not treated well. Um, Lawyers uh, are worried very few of them are going to make partners, so it becomes intensely competitive to get the you know to get to be a partner where you can make maybe half a million dollars to two million dollars a year on, in some of the bigger firms. Clients are paying for all this, and so uh, that's one of the reasons legal fees are so high. And the the family feeling that is prevalent at smaller law firms disappears and and people because people are in competition with each other for yes. basically for their professional future and we read each uh, uh, each year there are a number of big law firms that lay off lawyers lay off staff lay off partners lay off associates and so here's a lawyer with a lot of student debt working themselves incredible hours finding opportunities to bill clients even when there might be a shortcut that could save the client money and still get as good a result or maybe even a better result. And it's, it's, it's really sad, and that's what I mean by the commercialization yes. of the practice of law. I started running if, a few numbers on my I... computer as you were talking, John. A 2,800-hour uh, a year uh, of work comes to 11.2 hours per day. It's a 56-hour work week. If you're working 11.2 hours a day 
and let's say an hour each way in terms of commuting and getting settled in and everything, that's 13 hours a day. Yes. You put eight hours a day on top of that for sleeping, that's 21 hours. That leaves three hours a day for everything else possible, including food, including grooming, including social life, including yes. being with the children. It's impossible. It is impossible. It's impossible. If, if I may interject. Please um, do. If you, if you have a good staff member, a good, a good patent secretary in, in our case, they helped with that workload a great deal. Um, they were able to work with their attorneys. I saw many, many associates come and go. It happened um, when I became a patent secretary that I seemed to get all of the new ones as they came in. Um, they, would, they would give them to me, and, and I would have to kind of show them the ways of the firm. But um, many of them were very stressed and very unhappy in what they were doing. They, they loved. They were all um, engineers. They, they all had engineering backgrounds and wanted to do that kind of work. But the politics and everything came into play, and um, their staff members who were experienced who helped them and guided them, they knew if they got a good staff member, they, they, they were really very lucky. But the, the good ones were becoming fewer and far between because they were all being fired because they were too expensive. Um, they were costing the firm too much. So they were hiring inexperienced. So you've got inexperienced attorneys working with inexperienced staff members who can't teach them anything. And the staff members are very, very valuable assets, and I don't think that they're being recognized as such. They help with that, that those billable hours. They help them do the, the work that they need to do. And they're, they're having to do all of that work themselves these days. The young, I feel very, very sorry for the young associates coming in. Um, they're not getting the, the support that they deserve. Good, Again, staff, I, good tr- staff members are critical. Good they're staff invalu- members are critical. Invaluable. Good lawyer is critical. And I'm yes. coming back to the theme today of how to choose your lawyer. I'm listening to this program as if I were a listener out there, and I'm looking for a lawyer, and I'm saying, wow, this is a minefield. I mean, I better know what I'm doing when I'm looking for a lawyer. And yet, and yet... The reality is that almost always when we're looking for a lawyer, we've got something weighing on us, and that's why we're looking for a lawyer. And when we have something weighing on us, that's not the best time to be looking for somebody to protect us. The best time to be looking for somebody to protect us is when we don't need anybody to protect us, because that's when we're going to be the most rational, the most calm, the the, the best able to talk to our friends and our family about the person that I'm interviewing. But here I am walking into Patrick Pekin's office, and I'm scared out of my mind because I just have something coming at me from the law, and, and, and they're calling it a felony, and, and here I am, you know, they're sitting right in your office there trying to figure out, are you the right guy to take care of them? Wow, wow. I mean, it sounds to me like we need classes for the public online or in high schools or somewhere to help the public, to help the public figure out, how do you do this? Yes. And How do you do this? And so nice of you to have written this book. It's a great okay. book, folks. I mean, you got to find it at Amazon, Choosing Your Lawyer, an inside there's practical guide. I mean, he's got things in here like obvious red flags, obvious red flags. In other words, what's scary? Like, here's one, lawyers in financial difficulty. But how do I know if I walk into a lawyer's office? I had that happen in my life, where actually I found out that the lawyer that I w- that was representing me owed money 
to the other lawyer who sent me to that lawyer, and that's why that lawyer sent me to the lawyer, because she was owed money, so she wanted to help this guy's business so she could get paid back the money, right? And there I am with a guy who's nervous as all hell because he's about, excuse me, I might have used the wrong word there. I'm not sure if that's one of the seven words. I'd like to retract that. Um, and um, it, 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 the person was about to lose their home, very scared, not really in a good position to represent me. Yes. And here's one of your red flags right in Allison's book, Lawyers in Finance. How does a client know if you're in financial, if a lawyer's in financial difficulty? Are you allowed to ask the lawyer, hey, excuse me, are you having trouble financially, sir? I've never been asked that question. Of course not. Who would have the nerve to ask a lawyer such a question? You can go online, though. You can do research online and see if you can get a clue. That might, that might not come up, but, but just trust your intuition. I mean, you're in a lawyer's office, and, you know, if a lawyer seems a little bit too anxious to take your case, or you, you, you kind of get a feel. You get for, a feel for it. Here's another one that you list, John, and you mentioned before, Patrick, when a lawyer promises too much. John calls it lawyers who promise the moon, right? Right. You can't promise you know it's going to come in the outcome of a case. All you can promise is what? Hard work? Well, again, in the criminal context, it's you're talking to these people. They were... Let's stick with the DUI. We were working on that theme. Okay. It's a, it's a simple theme, and it's common enough for most people to understand. So when someone was pulled over for a DUI, typically they were drinking or perhaps using some other kind of narcotic. And so they might not have a perfectly clear memory of what happened, and they come to your office, and they want to tell you what they remember, but their memory might not be perfect. In, in fact, no one's is, not even sober people. And how can a lawyer possibly make a promise without reading the police report, say from the, the highway patrol officer or looking at the result of the breathalyzer. I mean, how can a lawyer possibly make a promise without looking into a single shred of evidence? You know, unfortunately, that's what a lot of lawyers try to do. They try to promise what, what kind of result they might get. And... Um, that can't reasonably be done. So watch out, folks. If a lawyer promises in that first interview that's supposed to be complimentary, that promises the moon. Quickly, I'm going to go through just a few of the other things that you mentioned here. Watch out for a lawyer who's too busy. You try to get him, on, him or her on the phone, and they can't take the call too often because they're just too busy. John puts that as one of the warning signs. How about lawyers who claim they never lose? That's a red flag in John Allison's book. It's what a, person never loses? I'm getting a signal here one minute. I guess we're going to have to start coming to the end of this wonderful program. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure having you here. It's been very educational. I hope it has been for our listeners, John Allison, Patrick Pekin, both attorneys here in Mendocino County, where I believe we have a lot more cooperation going on amongst lawyers and our wonderful district attorney, Dave Eister, our great sheriff, uh, Tom Allman. I think they lead the way towards cooperation rather than antagonism, which is a good thing. And that's I, part of the yes. positive. You both agree with that. It's that's a very part good thing. Of, that's I, a good thing. I think we have a very good bench and bar in this county. Yes. It's exceptional, yes. and it's different from many of the other counties that I've practiced in throughout the state. So we're going to continue this series. This was the second in the series on the legal profession. I want to remind you that archives of this program can be found at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org and on the KZYX website on something called Jukebox. Gentle friends, dear listeners, thank you for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike DeLora. 
Please join us again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. And until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is is worth, good health is worth working very hard for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you.